0: Hi, I'm Don Mackey, and welcome to the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. This show is focused on providing strategies to empower community success and vitality. Each episode will feature interviews with cutting edge rural development thought leaders and community practitioners, remarkable entrepreneurs from business, government, and nonprofits, and by sharing the learnings of E2 entrepreneurial ecosystems. Connect with me, learn more about E2, and subscribe to this show at energizingentrepreneurs.org.
1: Welcome to Pathways to Rural Prosperity. I'm Shelley Pash, business specialist and ecosystem builder for Kansas Main Street, and today I will be your host. But I am joined by Mr. Don Mackey with E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems, hosted by Network Kansas, and Don has worked in the field of community economic development for over 40 years in North America with that deepening focus on entrepreneur led economic development. So welcome Don. Hi.
0: Hi Shelley, it's great <laughs> to be with you again and I'm really excited about our topic today. I think it's really important and hopefully it'll be valuable to our audience. Well,
1: I'm very much looking forward to it. So we'll jump right in with previous podcasts that we've had, we've talked about e2s likely entrepreneurial Development opportunities. So, in this edition of Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast, we're exploring area spending capture and rural retailing. Why is it so important for rural communities to focus development energy on increasing area spending capture?
0: So given all the opportunities that rural communities have, this is probably the most universal and in some ways the lowest hanging fruit. And, you know, we know that the retailing space, which includes both goods and service providers, is very competitive. I mean, think about Amazon and Walmart and franchises like McDonald's that compete with local restaurants. Nevertheless, it's a huge part of the economy and it's also an area where even modest improvement in helping our local businesses become a little more competitive, capture a little more spending, can really build a much richer, a more diverse, and a higher value economy. And so, to me, this is the starting point that every community should begin with, is to say, let's be more competitive in capturing this spending, and so today with Rural Retailing, you know, we have a chance to share some of the wonderful models and practices that innovative people across rural America have uh, created to uh, say, I can grab a few of those dollars, make a better life for myself, and contribute to the vitality of my community.
1: Certainly, right? So E2 curated a new resource called Rural Retailing. I'm going to... Say that three times fast, right? (laughs) I just came back from a rural mural where somebody was trying to talk. (laughs) They did a very fine job. So this new resource called Rural Retailing. First, how was rural retailing? How has that come into existence? And second, maybe share with our listeners why this resource is so powerful and what it includes. And I'm guessing it's not just retail and restaurants.
0: Exactly. So a couple of origins. One is obviously what we just talked about, and that is area spending capture is so important and local retailing is is critical to that. And And again, just to put a definition on it, when we say retailing, we're also including services. That local doctor's office, that dentist, that spa, which is one of the stories we have that's part of rural retailing at least as we've talked about it two other things consumer spending is 70 percent of the american economy and so it's huge i mean it's what drives the american marketplace and so it's a huge opportunity to capture a slice of that obviously a lot of folks across the world are trying to do exactly that And the second is, as we've worked across the continent, Shelley, with a lot of different communities, we started collecting these models and stories and tactics, and we just thought it was a great time to kind of put those all together in one resource. And it's not the ultimate encyclopedia on rural retailing, but it's a start to say, there are people who are figuring out how to creatively compete And they're succeeding. And that could inform others in our rural communities on how they can grow more successful rural retail ventures.
1: Nice. Yeah. So I'm excited to see. I saw some of that in the paper that you had sent over. So with the rural retailing, you share some of the innovative and competitive venture models. Could you give us some examples of the rural creativity and the rural retailing space. And I will steal as much as I can.
0: Well, in our paper, we've got a baker's dozen of models. And and some of these are interrelated. And I think as people think about it, they know of businesses like this in, in their communities, in their region, obviously the destination business. In early April, we're gonna be up in Holt County, Nebraska. We're gonna visit the community of Atkinson. And it is a community that has one of the most remarkable seasonal gift stores I've ever been in. It's huge. (laughs) And they do online sales. They do mail order. They have buses of groups of people who are part of those 55 plus clubs that come and spend the day. And it's a destination business, but it also could be that local brew pub, uh, that great cafe. One of the stories we talk about is Utopia Spa in Ord, which is a destination business that attracts people from as far away as Denver and Omaha. To me, a lot of businesses can say we can create a larger market either through e-commerce or simply because we offer something special that we're going to bring consumers from a much larger geography. And you know that's been around for a long time, nothing new. Those great supper clubs in Wisconsin on the lakes, you know, they were destination businesses where people would travel two hours to go have a great meal and an experience. I think one of the newer models is our community ventures. And we've got some great examples up in New England, a ski resort that failed, the community bought it and operates it as a community venture because that resort was core to their economic success. But it also could be that local bookstore coffee shop in a small rural community that says, you know, we really don't have enough business to support a for-profit business. But we can set up that community venture, cover our costs, hire a manager, have a great amenity. And we're seeing a lot more of that, not only in rural America, but in urban cities where community ventures are an interesting model. Let me just highlight a couple more. Obviously, the hybrid businesses that have a brick and mortar outlet, but they also do online or e-commerce. And probably one of my favorite is some of the rural grocery stores now where a lot of people live in the community, but they commute down the road to work. And so they said, you know, I really can't afford to stretch my hours, but most of my consumers are out of town when I'm open. So they're going, okay, we can add online shopping, something that really became much more common and acceptable during COVID. Sure, (laughs) You know, we bought our groceries that way for almost a year and a half and still do because it's convenient. And with the idea that people over their lunch break can go online, get their grocery list. When they come back into town, they can pick up their groceries. It only takes one staff person to kind of manage that process, not a whole store of staff. And also then some of these grocery stores are saying, well, we know people are coming back into town and they have to immediately turn around, grab the kids and go to a ball game. So we're going to have ready to eat supper that you can pick up when you come back into town. This creates more traffic. It creates convenience, but it doesn't necessarily add to the cost of that store because during the day when things are a little slower, staff can fill those orders, get them ready. People come into town, pick them up. And now you're capturing more of that market that might have been lost to that big box store in the town where those folks worked. So those are a few examples of really innovative models where local retailers are succeeding and, again, making sure that that business is in town and uh, contributing to the economy.
1: Well, in this online, it's not a new venture at all. Right. And, but I'm so glad to have seen a lot of the grocery stores, some of the retailers, they can kind of dub this as personal shoppers. Right. But we saw this when I lived in California, you know, 25, 30 years ago, where you could actually do the shopping online and do that and, you know, pick a time between here and this, whether it's a grocery store or just a store that would actually deliver to your door between certain hours. And, it has been a fantastic rural retailing right tactic for these for these businesses to take on and just realize that especially those that have embraced it. So I'm so happy to hear that, you know, there's so so many more because I love having these stories when when talking to business owners and those main streeters across the state. So So
0: one of my special stories, you'll love this, is during COVID, kind of dark, challenging times and a lot of suffering. But one of the bright spots is in the community of Lincoln, where I live, we have a privately owned coffee shop called The Mill. And they have multiple locations in town. And of course, they were impacted with the shutdowns. And so what The Mill said is, well, we got to keep this community together because a lot of people are loyal to The Mill. They go there on a regular basis for lunch and breakfast and coffee, and they offer alcohol in the evening. And so they started doing wine tastings.
1: I like where, wine, where yeah, exactly, <laughs> where you
0: could go online and they had a wine expert who had gone to the vineyards, and so you know one Saturday night it would be Italy, another one it would be Sonoma Valley. And then their chef would have paired foods and they would deliver this to your door and then you would get on board with Zoom. Well, we did one, my wife and I, a week ago, and it was for a fundraiser for our Haymarket Market District, one of the first downtown associations in America or Main Street programs in America, I should say. And 550 people were online for that Oh my event. gosh. And we did chocolate <laughs> and wine.
1: Very nice.
0: That's <laughs> so awesome. anyway. It just speaks to creativity that comes out of distress. Yes. And it kept a community together that now, as these stores are opening up again and people can go in, they feel even a stronger affinity for the mill because the mill brought them some joy during these times when we couldn't get out and get together.
1: Right. That's fantastic. Gosh, what a great story. I feel like I'm an expert as well. I think anybody that knows what they like in wine or beer or coffee or whatever it is, it makes you an expert. So that's that's how I look at it. Also at E2, you and the team have been collecting stories, as we've mentioned, over 40 years. So this rural retailing, you share some cool stories curated by David LaQuinta and yourself. So- do you have more stories?
0: <laughs> well, we're, we're collecting more, and this is an open call to our audience. If you have great stories, share those with us. But I mean, a couple that I just love, and probably one of my favorites, is Dutch Brothers Coffee out of Oregon. And it started as one push cart, and the family that started it had a dairy business that they sold. It was failing. And they started this coffee business and they now have almost a thousand shops in the Pacific Northwest. They have a really interesting franchising model is you have to be a barista before you can buy, and these are drive up shops is is the model they use. But what's neat is in this rural community in Oregon where this was founded, it now creates a corporate headquarters. And so one of the papers we're sharing is how important these kind of rooted rural corporations are that when you have a successful business like that, that expands using a franchising model in this case, it now creates a greater diversity of higher value jobs and careers in a community. And it just speaks to the fact that corporate headquarters don't all have to be in big cities. They can be rooted in rural communities. And that's just a great example. Uh, One of my favorite stories, Another one is about a public venture, the Valley County Healthcare System, which in the late 1990s, early 2000s almost closed. I mean, that was after the big ag crisis in the 1980s. It's now a thriving rural healthcare system serving patients in a 17 county area. It's the largest wage and salary employer in the community of Ord. Wow. They have clinics in other communities. They provide hospice and wellness services. It just speaks to the fact that when we think about this, it's not just for profit businesses, but it might be a governmental entity, which is what the healthcare system is. Or it could be a nonprofit that is providing recreational facilities in communities across a rural geography. And so some neat stories there. Again, I think sometimes the stories are more powerful than when we abstract and say, here's the model. Uh, But of course, all of our models and tactics come from these stories because these are real live situations where people have been creative. That's why I think it's so inspiring for folks who say, gosh, I don't know if we can make a go of this. Well, if you can be one of the largest supplier of Christmas decorations in the tiny town of Atkinson, Nebraska, then lots of things are possible. Yes, for sure.
1: So other retailing, rural retailing, they have the menu, huge menu of rural retailing tactics. And I know we don't have time today to cover all of these. And it sounds, you know, you have some of your favorites, I know, and we've heard some of them throughout. So why don't you share one or two more great stories that you have?
0: Well, I'm going to actually pivot and ask you, I know you're the host. So, okay, I'm, I'm uh, changing the order here, but yes, you know, you work with Main Streets and before that you worked with Network Kansas and you were in rural communities. You've got a rich set of stories what are some of the tactics that you're seeing with businesses in rural Kansas? So I'd like to get one of your stories first, and then I can share some of my favorites. How about that?
1: Let's see. Gosh, there was a woman down in, I could Google it, but she's down in Garnett, Kansas. And she did a huge pivot and kind of did that online shopping. And um, they, Garnett, Kansas is an affiliate of Main Street And she just, she got it right. She just wanted to make sure that she offered this and she did the the personal shopping for people and being able to take what they wanted and what they ordered from her and took it right over to their homes. And if it wasn't what they wanted, then she would go back. And, you know, she just knew that she had to do those things that she wasn't going to make it if she, if she didn't do and, and everybody, everybody suffered, but hearing some of those stories and. Being put on the spot, I'd have to kind of think. I know some of you know we hear about states that do some things too, some incentives that they offer. Like in Kansas, there's the RAS program, the Rural Opportunity Zone, where you can get a student loan reimbursement assistance or a, or a hundred percent state income tax credit. Bemidji, Minnesota, offers up to twenty five hundred moving expenses, right, and they give a year membership of co-working space and free access to the community concierge program. So it's cool to hear some of these things that other states are doing to make sure that they move in. I was hoping to buy some time so I could think of some other
0: stories. Well, well, let me share a couple of mine and that'll get your engine going. You know, building off of your one story, of course, I grew up in a family. There were seven brothers in my dad's family and they were all in Main Street kinds of businesses, grocery stores, plumbers, television. My dad and mom, by and large, had uh, gas stations and garages. And, you know, my dad, I'm not sure he got a high school education because this was the depression, but he had a really good sense of how to build customer loyalty. He didn't want to be big. He knew he couldn't compete on price, uh, particularly in the gas station business where the price is pretty well set. But he had this habit of whenever he was interacting with a customer to ask them, what could he do that he's not doing that would be valuable to them? And he just had a real informal way. And so when he was collecting the money after they bought gas or whatever, would engage in that conversation And over the years, he realized that what he needed to do was provide those extra services that you were talking about. So when my dad's last gas station in Ogallala, Nebraska, he had this huge following of retired people, widows, widowers. And it's because he would pick up their car. He would service it. They trusted him that if they needed tires, he would tell them. But if they didn't, he would tell them not to spend money on that. And as a result, he created this profit center with these loyal customers. Yeah, fair prices, but it was that extra service. So I think that's important. It's a simple thing. Don't just do the transaction. Talk to your customers, ask them what they want. Think about how you can evolve your model to where you create that combination of not only a good price, but exceptional service, and maybe those extras that get people to come back. So that's one thing, and I think it's just basic blocking and tackling. Another that's really impressed me is we know that in the retail space, the goods retail space, whether it's hardware or groceries or clothing, it's really tough. And one of the stories we picked out of Ord that was really telling was there's this serial entrepreneur, Gaylord Borrelson, and he runs auto parts stores. That's among other businesses that he has. And he is an expert. Uh, Self-educated in dead inventory management, point-of-sale tracking, discount purchasing. So a number of the tactics. And as a result, he has higher sales, turns his inventory over more quickly, and in turn has higher profits. Now, what's neat is Gaylord also loves his community, and he's become an investor and a mentor with other retailers teaching them the art and the science of debt inventory management, point of sale tracking, discount purchasing, all of those things that really provides a foundation for competitiveness with brick and mortar goods providing businesses. You know, it's one of those things that If you're a young person moved into the community, you're buying the grocery store. I'm thinking about Red Cloud, the couple that came back in. Now they had grocery experience. Those skills are huge and can mean the difference between a successful business and one that atrophies over time.
1: Well, it did jog my memory on some.
0: (laughs) Oh, gosh.
1: So of course, when everything started to shut down and all of that, right? So we had, um, and off the top of my head, I start thinking of some of the places, Magnolia Sense by Design in Independence, Kansas, who have outstanding, just absolutely incredible customer experience, customer service. They make it a point that you don't, you know, within five seconds, somebody is greeting you at that door, right? But they ended up getting they they have hand poured candles and shampoos and they've got loose leaf tea and they've just got so many things there and local artists that are actually have their wares throughout their store and be able to sell those cross promote you know other stores that are in the community as well but they got into the business of hand sanitizer and. You know, when you find out that there's a bottle shortage, right, they ended up a lot of theirs. They went into the honey bears. They, that's what they gave them because there was such a bottle shortage. But they they did. They got into the hand sanitizer business, as did um, Boot Hill Distillery in Dodge City, Kansas as well. Obviously, hearing a distillery, it is yeah. not hand sanitizer. <laughs> but I mean, it was just a super creative ways of these people doing these things. And they're both Main Street communities. Hooray! But they also, gosh, I know when I spoke with Coral Lopez out in Dodge City, I think it's either six and seven or seven and eight, but they had seven businesses that opened in their community during 2020 and six of them were minority businesses. So that was absolutely incredible. And, you know, if we think about it, there is a higher rate of non-native-born Americans that are actually opening businesses and entrepreneurship. So that's another thing that you need to focus on. So hooray for all of those people.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, and I think collectively, while it's a challenging environment and it can be really hard, It just speaks to the fact that there is opportunity. And if you're willing to network, if you're willing to learn, if you're willing to find your niche, I mean, as Chris Gibbons with Economic Gardening always says, is don't compete on the commodity level. You can't unless you're huge. Find those competitive niches. And that's what our conversation is all about today. People finding ways to create a value added that gives them a unique position in the marketplace for success. So anyway, we just hope this new paper does two things. One is it inspires people and gives them a resource. But like I said, we would love people to share your stories with us so that we can continue to curate this resource over time to include more stories, better information that can be used to really advance this likely entrepreneurial development opportunity.
1: Well, awesome. I appreciate you being my guest today and turning the tables around for a minute. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Through you, so
1: Yeah. So why don't you share with our listeners where they can learn more about rural retailing?
0: You bet. So as always, we encourage uh, our audience to go to our website, energizingentrepreneurs.org. Uh, there you can find a whole set of resources, including a theme page on area spending capture Of course, you can join our National Practitioners Network and get a whole set of free resources that are field tested in the art of rural entrepreneurial ecosystem building, our newsletter where you can get the latest information and then, of course, subscribe to our podcasts. In terms of this edition, we will be releasing our rural retailing paper that Shelley's had a chance to preview that our good friend Kate Hodel has helped us put together. Yeah, shout out to Kate. Of course, we'll re-release and share with uh, you our Area Spending Capture Strategy Guide and our overall likely Entrepreneurial Development Opportunities paper. So, some great resources. Some of them have been out there, but we're going to remind you that they're there if this topic has sparked your interest. And as always, Shelly, we're here. If people have questions, just reach out to us, and we'll try to connect them to a story, a resource something that can help them advance entrepreneurship in their corner of rural America.
1: Well, that's exactly what we want. So again, Dawn, it has been my pleasure to have you as a guest and all of our best to you and those that are out there and all of our efforts of growing a stronger rural community.
0: Thank you, Shelley. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Head on over to energizingentrepreneurs.org where you can subscribe to this podcast and tap into more than 25 years of field experience from E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems. I'm Don Mackey, and I'll see you next time on Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast.